Welcome to episode 22 of the Rattle Fiction Podcast, where I, David John Drow, read you the best web fiction on the internet. Today, we've got the second half of Beizu Sukai, a collection of chapters by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Chapter 4 The Ritual The room in which Jeffrey Sai received his non Beizu Tsukai visitors was quietly formal impeccably appointed in only the most conservative tastes. Sunlight and outside air streamed through a grillwork of polished silver, a few sharp edges making it clear that this wall was not to be opened. The floor and walls were glass, thick enough to distort, to a depth sufficient that it didn't matter what might be underneath. Upon the surfaces of the glass were subtly scratched patterns of no particular meaning, scribed as if by the hand of an artistically inclined child. And this was, in fact, the case. Elsewhere in Geoffrey Sy's home, there were rooms of other style, but this, he had found, was what most outsiders expected of a Bayesian master, and he chose not to enlighten them otherwise. That quiet amusement was one of life's little joys after all. The guest sat across from him, knees on the pillow and heels behind. She was here solely upon the business of her conspiracy, and her attire showed it. A form-fitting jumpsuit of pink leather, with even her hands gloved all the way to the hood covering her head and hair, though her face lay plain and unconcealed beneath. And so, Geoffrey Sy had chosen to receive her in this room. Geoffrey Sy let out a long breath, exhaling. Are you sure? Oh, she said. And do I have to be absolutely certain before my advice can shift your opinions? Does it not suffice that I am a domain expert and you are not Jeffrey Sy's mouth twisted up at the corner in a half-smile. How do you know so much about the rules, anyway? You've never had so much as a plank length of formal training. Do you even need to ask, she said dryly, if there's one thing that you, Bezusukai, do love to go on about, it's the reasons why you do things. Geoffrey Sy inwardly winced at the thought of trying to pick up rationality by watching other people talk about it. And don't inwardly wince at me like that, she said. I'm not trying to be a rationalist myself. Just trying to win an argument with a rationalist. There's a difference, as I'm sure you tell your students. Can she really read me that well? Jeffrey Sy looked out through the silver grill work at the sunlight reflected from the faceted mountainside. Always, always the golden sunlight fell each day in this place far above the clouds. An unchanging thing, that light, the distant sun, which that light represented, was in five billion years burned out. But now, in this moment, the sun still shone, and that could never alter. Why wish for things to stay the same forever? 
when that wish was already granted, as absolutely as any wish could be. The paradox of permanence and impermanence. Only in the latter perspective was there any such thing as progress or loss. You have always given me good counsel, Geoffrey Sigh said. Unchanging that has been, through all the time we've known each other. She inclined her head, acknowledging. This was true, and there was no need to spell out the implications. So, Geoffrey Sigh said, not for the sake of arguing, only because I want to know the answer. Are you sure? He didn't even see how she could guess. Pretty sure, she said. We've been collecting statistics for a long time, and in 985 out of a thousand cases like yours. Then she laughed at the look on his face. No, I'm joking. Of course I'm not sure. This thing only you can decide, but I am sure that you should go off and do whatever it is you people do. I'm quite sure you have a ritual for it, even if you won't discuss it with outsiders, when you very seriously consider abandoning a long-held premise of your existence. It was hard to argue with that, Jeffrey Sigh reflected, the more so when a domain expert had told you that you were, in fact, probably wrong. I concede, Jeffrey Sigh said. Coming from his lips, the phrase was spoken with a commanding finality. There is no need to argue with me any further. You have won. Oh, stop it, she said. She rose from her pillow in a single fluid shift without the slightest wasted motion. She didn't flaunt her age, but she didn't conceal it either. She took his outstretched hand and raised it to her lips for a formal kiss. Farewell, Sensei. Farewell, repeated Geoffrey Sigh. That signified a higher order of departure than goodbye. I do intend to visit you again, my lady, and you're always welcome here. She walked toward the door without answering. At the doorway, she paused without turning around. It won't be the same she said. And then, without the movements seeming the least rushed, she walked away so swiftly it was almost like vanishing. Geoffrey sighed, sighed. But, at least, from here until the challenge proper, all his actions were prescribed, known quantities. Leaving that formal reception area, he passed to his arena and caused to be sent out messengers to his students telling them that the next day's classes must be improvised in his absence and that there would be a test later. And then he did nothing in particular. He read another hundred pages of the textbook he had borrowed. It wasn't very good, but then the book he had loaned out in exchange wasn't very good either. He wandered from room to room of his house, idly checking various storages to see if anything had been stolen. A deck of cards was missing but that was all. From time to time, his thoughts turned towards tomorrow's challenge, and he let them drift, not directing his thoughts at all, 
only blocking out every thought that had ever previously occurred to him and disallowing any kind of conclusion or even any thought as to where his thoughts might be trending. The sun set, and he watched it for a while, mind carefully put in idle. It was a fantastic balancing act to set your mind in idle without having to obsess about it, or exert energy to keep it that way. And years ago, he would have sweated over it, but practice had long since made perfect. The next morning, he awoke with the chaos of the night's dreaming fresh in his mind, and doing his best to preserve the feeling of the chaos as well as its memory, he descended a flight of stairs, then another flight of stairs, then a flight of stairs after that, and finally came to the least fashionable room in his whole house. It was white. That was pretty much it, as far as the color scheme went. All along a single wall were plaques, which, following the classic and suggested method, a younger Jeffrey Sy had very carefully scribed himself, burning the concepts into his mind with each touch of the brush that wrote the words. That which can be destroyed by the truth should be. People can stand what is true, for they are already enduring it. Curiosity seeks to annihilate itself. Even one small plaque that showed nothing except a red horizontal slash. Symbols could be made to stand for anything, a flexibility of visual power that even the bardic conspiracy would balk at admitting outright. Beneath the plaques, two sets of tally marks scratched into the wall. Under the plus column, two marks. Under the minus column, five marks. Seven times he had entered this room. Five times he had decided not to change his mind. Twice he had exited something of a different person. There was no set ratio prescribed or set range. That would have been a mockery indeed. But if there were no marks in the plus column after a while, you might as well admit that there was no point in having the room since you didn't really have the ability it stood for. Either that, or you'd been born knowing the truth and right of everything. Jeffrey Sy seated himself, not facing the plaques, but facing away from them at the featureless white wall. It was better to have no visual distractions. In his mind, he rehearsed the first metanomonic and then the various subnomonics referenced for the seven major principles and 62 specific techniques that are most likely to prove needful in the ritual of changing one's mind. To this, Jeffrey Sy added another mnemonic, reminding himself of his own 14 most embarrassing oversights. He did not take a deep breath. Regular breathing was best. And then he asked himself the question. End the Ritual Chapter 5 Final Words Sunlight and rich air already alive with curiosity, 
as dawn rose on Brennan and his fellow students in the place to which Geoffrey Sigh had summoned them. They sat there and waited, the five, at the top of the great glassy crag that was sometimes called Mount Mirror, and more often simply left unnamed. The high top and peak of the mountain from which you could see all the lands below and the seas beyond. Well, not all the lands below, nor seas beyond. So far as anyone knew, there was still no place in the world from which all the world was visible, nor, equivalently, any kind of vision that would see through all obstacle horizons. In the end, it was the top of only one particular mountain. There were other peaks, and from their tops you would see other lands below. Even though, in the end, it was all a single world. What do you think comes next? said Hariwa. Her eyes were bright, and she gazed to the far horizons like a lord. Taji shrugged, though his own eyes were alive with anticipation. Geoffrey Sai's last lesson doesn't have any obvious sequel that I can think of. In fact, I think we've learned just about everything that I knew the Beizu Sukai masters know. What's left, then, are the real secrets. Yin completed the thought. Hiriwa and Taji and Yin shared a grin among themselves. Sterlin wasn't smiling. Brennan suspected rather strongly that Sterlin was older than he had admitted. Brennan wasn't smiling either. He might be young, but he kept high company and had witnessed some of what on behind the curtains of the world. Secrets had their price, always. That was the barrier that made them secrets. And Brennan thought he had a good idea of what this price might be. There was a cough from behind them, at a moment when they had all happened to be looking in any other direction but that one. As one, their heads turned. Geoffrey Sigh stood there in a casual robe that looked more like glass than any proper sort of mirror weave. Geoffrey Sigh stood there and looked at them, a strange, abiding sorrow in those inscrutable eyes. Sensei? Taji started, faltering as that bright anticipation stumbled over Geoffrey Sigh's return look. What's next? Nothing, Geoffrey Sigh said abruptly. You're finished. It's done. Hiriwa, Taji, and Yin all blinked, a perfect synchronized gesture of shock. Then, before their expressions could turn to outrage and objections, Don't, Geoffrey Sigh said. There was real pain in it. Believe me, it hurts me more than it hurts you. He might have been looking at them or at something far away or long ago. I don't know exactly what roads may lie before you. But yes, I know that you're not ready, that I'm sending you out unprepared, that everything I taught you is incomplete. I know that what I said is not what you heard, that I left out the one most important thing, that the rhythm at the center of everything is missing and astray. I know 
that you will harm yourself in the course of trying to use what I taught, so that I personally will have shaped in some fashion unknown to me the very knife that will cut you. That's the hell of being a teacher, you see? Jeffrey sigh said. Something grim flickered in his expression. Nonetheless, you're done, finished for now. What lies between you and mastery is not another classroom. We are fortunate, or perhaps not fortunate, that the road to power does not wend only through lecture halls, else the quest would be boring to the bitter end. Still, I cannot teach you, and so it is a moot point whether I would if I could. There is no master here whose art is entirely inherited. Even the Besusukai have never discovered how to teach certain things. It is possible that such an event has been prohibited, and so you can only arrive at mastery by using to the fullest the techniques you have already learned, facing challenges and apprehending them, mastering the tools you have been taught until they shatter in your hands. Jeffrey Sy's eyes were hard, as though steeled in acceptance of unwelcome news. And you are left in the midst of wreckage absolute. That is where I, your teacher, am sending you. You are not Beizu Sukai masters. I cannot create masters. I have never known how to create masters. Go forth, then, and fail. But, said Yin, and stopped herself. Speak, said Geoffrey Sai. But then why, she said, why teach us anything in the first place? Brennan's eyelids flickered some tiny amount. It was enough for Geoffrey Sai. Answer her, Brennan, if you think you know. Because, Brennan said, if we were not taught, there would be no chance at all of us becoming masters. Even so, said Geoffrey Sigh, if you were not taught, then when you failed, you might simply think you had reached the limits of reason itself. You would be discouraged and bitter within your disaster. You might not even realize when you had failed. No, you have been shaped into something that may emerge from the wreckage, determined to remake your art. And then you may remember much that will help you. I cannot create masters, but if you had not been taught, your chances would be less. His gaze passed over the group. It should be obvious, but understand you cannot provoke the moment of your crisis artificially. To teach you something, the catastrophe must come to you as a surprise. You must go as far as you can, as best you can, and fail honestly. The higher road begins after the art seems to fail you, though the reality will be that it was you who failed your art. Brendan made the gesture with his hand that indicated a question, and Geoffrey Sigh nodded in reply. 
Is this the only way in which Bayesian masters come to be, sensei? I do not know, said Geoffrey Sigh, from which the overall state of the evidence was obvious enough. But I doubt there would ever be a road to mastery that goes only through the monastery. We are the heirs in this world of mystics as well as scientists, just as the competitive conspiracy inherits from chess players alongside cage fighters. We have turned our impulses to more constructive uses, but we must still stay on our guard against old failure modes. Jeffrey Sigh took a breath. Three flaws, above all, are common among the Bezusukai. The first flaw is to look just the slightest bit harder for flaws and arguments whose conclusions you would rather not accept. If you cannot contain this aspect of yourself, then every flaw you know how to detect will make you that much stupider. This is the challenge which determines whether you possess the art or its opposite. Intelligence, to be useful, must be used for something other than defeating itself. The second flaw is cleverness, to invent grand, complicated plans and great, complicated theories and great, complicated arguments, or even perhaps plans and theories and arguments which are commended too much by their elegance and too little by their realism. There is a widespread saying which runs, The vulnerability of Bezusukai is well known. They are prone to be too clever. Your enemies will know this saying if they know you for a Bezusukai, so you had best remember it also. And you may think to yourself, But if I could never try anything clever or elegant, would my life be ever worth living? And this is why cleverness is still our chief vulnerability, even after it's being well known. Like offering a competitor a challenge that seems fair, or tempting a bard with drama. The third flaw is underconfidence, though it will seem to you like modesty or humility. You have learned so many flaws in your own nature, some of them impossible to fix, that you may think that the rule of wisdom is to confess your own ability. You may question yourself without resolution or testing to determine the self-answers. You may refuse to decide, pending further evidence, when a quick decision is necessary. You may take advice you should not take. Jaded cynicism and sage despair are less fashionable than they once were. But you still may be tempted by them, or you may simply lose momentum. Geoffrey sigh fell silent then. He looked from each of them, one to the other, with quiet intensity and said at last, These are my final words to you. If and when we meet next, you and I, if and when you return to this place, Brennan, or Hariwa, or Taji, or Yin, or Sterlin, I will no longer be your teacher. And Geoffrey Sigh turned and walked swiftly away, heading back towards the glassy tunnel that had admitted him. Even Brennan was shocked. For a moment, they were all speechless. Then, Wait! cried Hariwa. 
What about our final words to you? I never said, I will tell you what my sensei told me. Jeffrey's voice came back as he disappeared. You can thank me after you return, if you return. One of you, at least, seems likely to come back. No, wait, I... Hidira fell silent. In the mirrored tunnel, the fractured reflections of Jeffrey's sigh were already fading. She shook her head. Never mind then. There was a brief, uncomfortable silence as the five of them looked at each other. Good heavens, Taji said finally. Even the Bardic conspiracy wouldn't try for that much drama. Yin suddenly laughed. Oh, this was nothing. You should have seen my send-off when I left Diamond Sea University. She smiled. I'll tell you about it sometime, if you're interested. Taji coughed. I suppose I should go back and pack my things. I'm already packed, Brennan said. He smiled ever so slightly when the other three turned to look at him. Really? Taji asked. What was the clue? Brennan shrugged with artful carelessness. Beyond a certain point, it's futile to inquire how a basic guy master knows a thing. Come off it, Yin said. You're not a Beisutsukai master yet. Neither is Sterling, Brennan said, but he has already packed as well. He made it a statement, rather than a question, betting double or nothing on his image of inscrutable foreknowledge. Sterling cleared his throat. As you say, other commitments call me, and I have already tarried longer than I planned. Though, Brennan... I do feel that you and I have certain mutual interests, which I would be happy to discuss with you. Sterling, my most excellent friend, I shall be happy to speak with you on any topic you desire, Brennan said politely and noncommittally, if we should meet again. As in, not now. He certainly wasn't selling out his mistress this early in the relationship. There was an exchange of goodbyes, and of hints and offers, and then Brennan was walking down the road that led toward or away from Mount Mirror, for every road is a two-edged sword, the glassy pebbles clicking under his feet. He strode out along the path with purpose, vigor, and determination, just in case someone was watching. Sometime later he stopped stepped off the path, and moved just far enough away to prevent anyone from finding him unless they were deliberately following. Then, Brennan sagged against a tree trunk. It was a dense, sparse clearing with only a few trees poking out of the ground, not much present in the way of distracting scenery unless you counted the red-tinted stream flowing out of a dark cave mouth. And Brennan deliberately faced away from that, leaving only the far gray of the horizons and the blue sky and bright sun. Now what? He had thought that the Bayesian conspiracy of all the possible trainings that existed in this world would have cleared up his uncertainty about what to do with the rest of his life. Power he'd sought at first, strength to prevent a repetition of the past. 
If you don't know what you need, take power. So went the proverb. He had gone first to the competitive conspiracy, then to the Bezutsukai. And now? Now he felt more lost than ever. He could think of things that made him happy, but nothing that he really wanted. The passionate intensity that he'd come to associate with his mistress, or with Jeffrey Sai, or the other figures of the power that he'd met. A life of pursuing small pleasures seemed to pale in comparison next to that. In a city not far from the center of the world, his mistress waited for him, in all probability, assuming she hadn't gotten bored with her life and run away. But to merely return and then drift aimlessly, waiting to fall into someone else's web of intrigue? No, that didn't seem like enough. Brennan plucked a blade of glass from the ground and stared at it, half unconsciously looking for anything interesting about it, an old, old game that his very first teacher had taught him what now seemed like ages ago. Why did I believe that going to Mount Mirror would tell me what I wanted? Well, decision theory did require that your utility function be consistent, but if the Bezusukai knew what I wanted, would they even tell me? At Mount Mirror, they taught doubt. So now he was falling prey to the third besetting sin of which Jeffrey Sai had spoken, lost momentum, for he had learned to question the image that he held of himself in his mind. Are you seeking power because that is your true desire, Brennan? Or because you have a picture in your mind of the role that you play as an ambitious young man and you think it is what someone playing your role would do? Almost everything he'd done up until now even going to Mount Mirror, was probably the latter. And when he blanked out the old thoughts and tried to see the problem as though for the first time, nothing much came to mind. What do I want? Maybe it wasn't reasonable to expect the Bezusukai to tell him outright. But was there anything they had taught him by which he might answer? Brennan closed his eyes and thought. First, suppose there is something I would passionately desire. Why would I not know what it is? Because I have not yet encountered it, or ever imagined it. Or because there is some reason I would not admit it to myself. Brennan laughed out loud and opened his eyes. So simple, once you thought of it that way. So obvious in retrospect. That was what they called a silver shoes moment, and yet, if he hadn't gone to Mount Mirror, it wouldn't ever have occurred to him. Of course there was something he wanted. He knew exactly what he wanted, wanted so desperately he could taste it, like a sharp tinge on his tongue. It just hadn't come to his mind earlier, because if he acknowledged his desire explicitly, then he also had to see that it was difficult, high, high above him, far out of his reach. Impossible was the word that came to mind, though it was not, of course, physically impossible. But once he asked himself if he preferred to wander aimlessly through his life, once it was put that way, the answer became obvious.
Pursuing the unattainable would make for a hard life, but not a sad one. He could think of things that made him happy either way, and in the end, it was what he wanted. Brennan stood up and took his first steps in the exact direction of Sheer Lore, the city that lies in the center of the world. He had a plot to hatch, and he did not know who would be a part of it. And then Brennan almost stumbled when he realized that Jeffrey Sigh had already known. One of you, at least, seems likely to come back. Brennan thought he was talking about Taji. Taji had probably thought he was talking about Taji. It was what Taji said he wanted. But how reliable of an indicator was that, really? There was a proverb about that very road he had just left. Whoever sets out from Mount Mirror seeking the impossible will surely return. When you consider Geoffrey Sy's last warning, and that the proverb said nothing of succeeding at the impossible task itself, it was a less optimistic saying than it sounded. Brennan shook his head wonderingly. How could Geoffrey Sy possibly have known before Brennan knew himself? Well... Beyond a certain point, it is futile to inquire how a Bezu Sukai master knows a thing. Brennan halted in mid-thought. No. No. If he was going to become a Bezu Sukai master himself someday, then he ought to figure it out. It was, Brennan realized, a stupid proverb. So he walked, and this time he thought about it carefully. As the sun was setting, red golden shading his footsteps in the light. And that's the end of the Bezu Sukai series by Eliezer Yudkowsky. What a great series of snapshots where we, we don't learn the actual facts about the insight, like Brennan's plot or what Jeffrey Sai's change of mind was about. Just that such insights are possible and the shape of that process and what it feels like from the inside. You've been listening to the Rattle Fiction Podcast. Podcast.